welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Alona Gabacher. She's a PhD student in Islamic studies at Columbia University, with a focus on antinomian Sufism in medieval Islamicate empire. Her work explores the embodied experience of Sufi men and women living in medieval Baghdad. Alona, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Amanda. So you have joined us today to speak about Moses Maimonides. Or in Arabic, Musa ibn Maimun, his lesser known, but still really important sobriquet. Well, lesser known, no longer. We have included it here. (laughs) But before we get too deep into him, let's talk a little bit more about you. How did you find yourself studying mysticism? Yeah, so this has sort of a two-pronged explanation. One is academic and cold and dry, you know, and the other is a little bit more personal. On a super frank level, I was living in Egypt, as many mystics have done, and I was studying the Arabic language at a very high level with this program run by Harvard called the Center for Advanced Arabic Studies. And I was reading every morning on my balcony, the poems of Rumi, you know, Jalal ad-Din Rumi, this great mystic. And I was reading it in a horrible translation, Coleman Barks. I mean, he basically didn't even read Farsi, but it was so pleasant to read Sufi poetry in whatever translation on my balcony in Cairo, overlooking the city, listening to Adhan, to the call of prayer, watching the birds. And I felt like a stirring in my soul. So when my advisor Well, when my advisor, Catherine Ewing, who's a professor of religion at Columbia, came to me and said she wanted to co-write a paper with me about calendar Sufis, who are these like antinomian Sufis who walked around the streets of Baghdad naked with like rings in their penis, just shaving their heads and living in graveyards. I was like, cool, let's do it, Kathy. So having had no real academic interest or inclination towards Sufism, all of a sudden by synchronicity, I'm reading Sufi poetry every morning. And I'm going to be writing about one of the most interesting movements in Sufism, which are a group of people who completely cast off the norms of medieval Islamicate society in order to shine a bright light at the God that lives under those norms. So that happened. I mean, yeah, that's a no brainer. Nothing sounds better than that. Like, hey, do you want to write a paper with me about people wandering around with rings in their penises? Yes, yes, I do. That sounds incredible. (laughs) Yes, yes, I do. Okay, so that's the more academic reason. What is the more personal reason for you coming to mysticism as a field of study? I had a number of really odd, I want to call them mystical experiences around the birth of my first son. Um, And also around the birth of my second son. Uh, For example, I had a prophetic dream about his birth. A week before his birth, I had a dream of exactly how his birth would go, exactly how I would go into labor, where it would be, what would happen, what I would say to my husband. A week later, it came true to the last detail. And I I was shocked. And in the dream, a very prominent Egyptian historian, Al-Makrizi in the 13th century, came to me in a dream and gave me a box of magic. And that box full of magic was my child. And he is the most magical child. And he's my gift. So besides just the academic experience in Egypt, then having this prophetic dream and having it come true and having my eldest son be a box of magic, like the historian gave to me, really made me think that there was something more to it than what the purely rational mind can comprehend. That's really nice. I love it when people get to have a personal connection to their work, as well as just being inspired by the textual materials. That's a really nice thing to have. And I think as women scholars, the stereotype is, oh, your family is only going to get in the way of your work. 
that's complete nonsense. My thinking has never been clearer. I've never been more motivated. I've never been more interested in mystical transcendence than when I'm with my kids, because talk about acts of servitude and sacrifice. Acts of servitude and sacrifice could genuinely be the tagline for parenthood. It's just insane. So a term that was mentioned in your introduction and that you've just used again is antinomian. Could you explain what antinomian means? Yeah, sure. So antinomian is from ancient Greek. So antinomos, or for a really direct translation, against the law. It's an especially important idea when we talk about law-based religions or codex-based religions like Judaism and Islam, where there is a corpus of laws in Judaism 613, in Islam many more, depending on the particular legal school that you're in, if you're a Shia or a Sunni, etc. And these are both faiths of the book and of the law. Therefore, when you call a Sufi, a Muslim Sufi or a Jewish Sufi antinomian, you're saying that they are going against the very basis of the faith. There's almost nothing scarier or worse that someone can do than go against the basis that God gave us to work on. And yet Sufism, very interestingly, in its originating essence, is a critique of the nomos of both Islam and later Judaism. Okay, so those described as antinomian are those who go against the law as it is written for the faith. Is that inherently negative or is it a matter of interpretation? Well, let me ask you, a group of men is walking down the streets of Manhattan naked, chanting the name of God with rings in their penises and skulls in their hands, begging for alms. How do you respond? Blushing, staring at my shoes... And maybe giggling out of sheer nervousness would be my guess. (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, even though it's obviously something they're comfortable with, I don't know that I am always just ready to see naked people in public. It's not something that I anticipate and kind of prepare myself for on a moment to moment basis. So shock, I think. And that feeling of discomfort or what Julia Kristeva calls the abject, that is precisely what antinomian Sufis or antinomian mystics are attempting to elicit in their viewer. That feeling of discomfort, or in Arabic, ishmezaz, is supposed to draw you to God. Why is looking at this naked person chanting, this dread that becomes awe, that is at the limits of what I can rationally comprehend? What am I seeing? What am I feeling? That exact expression of discomfort and disgust, that is the one that antinomianism seeks to elicit. How you understand antinomianism is very much linked to which side of the law do you fall on? Are you yourself a caliph trying to establish order in your city? Are you a policeman trying to make sure that naked men aren't smoking hashish walking down the cities of New York? Well, then you're probably going to be pretty against it. And so antinomian Sufism, particularly in Baghdad under the Abbasid caliphs, was persecuted pretty heavily, culminating in the death of about 70 Sufi mystics, most prominent among them, Al-Halaj, the great Sufi poet who said, Anna al-Haq, I am the truth, the ultimate heresy that he himself is in likeness to God. And antinomian Sufis, Kalanders, Barelvis, there's a whole a list of them, are very much rejected in normative Sufi practice and by the state, by the Fatimids, by the Abbasids, the Seljuks, but very much desired by the people. And you have this phenomenon of young men of elite status running away and shaving their hair and divorcing their wives and giving away all their possessions to join the calendar smoking hashish in the graveyards. It's both desired and hated, and so it's abjected. 
That is so fascinating, and I'm incredibly jealous of your project. This sounds like so much fun to study. (laughs) I mean, just admit it. You kind of want to run away and be one with God in the cemetery, away from all your responsibilities and normative middle-class life. Who doesn't? I mean, maybe not a cemetery. Maybe like a beach or some woods. Maybe less public. And not necessarily for religious reasons, so much as just like... A break would be nice, but I get it. And what you're saying, I need a break, that was a completely legitimate reason to leave normative, courtly, upper class or middle class life. For example, the Qutb al-Din, the axle of the faith of uh, Islamic mysticism, Al-Ghazali, left Baghdad, where he was like a tenured professor of philosophy, like our equivalent, and for 10 years wandered the Middle East as a mendicant. He took a break from being at the center of political and religious life because he needed it. So do we. Avid listeners of the podcast will remember him from episode 22, where Joseph Lombard joined us to talk about his brother, Ahmed al-Ghazali. Yeah, exactly. But before we get sidetracked into returning to previous mystics, let's talk about Moses Maimonides. So tell us a little bit about him. So the very first thing I'm going to say is that my calling him a mystic would be a site of much controversy. And he is absolutely not considered a mystic in normative Jewish circles. He's considered the the heir of Aristotle, the rationalist par excellence. And I'm going to go into like a nice little discourse on why I think that's complete horseshit. (laughs) Excellent. Let's do it. So Moses ben Maimonides, Musa ibn Maimon, lived from 1138 to 1204. He was born in Cordoba, worked as a rabbi, physician, and philosopher. He died in Kustat, Egypt, and he was buried in Israel. He was the personal physician of the founder of the Ayyubid dynasty, Saladin, and was in the Sufi circles of Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, the founder of the Qadiriya order of Sufism. He's considered, as I said earlier, the preeminent rationalist and the man who brought the Jewish integration of Aristotle into being, particularly in one of his major ethical works where he sort of integrates the Nicomachean ethics with the Torah, the Perkei Avot, the ethics of the fathers. His reputation is such in the Jewish community that it is said from Moses of the Torah to Moses Maimonides, there is no one like Moses. Wow, high praise. Yeah. So what makes Moses really important as a normative Jewish thinker is his most famous work, the Mishnah Torah. Now, the Mishnah Torah is not like Jewish works that come before it. It's not like the Talmud, which is a commentary on the Torah. It's a codex of Jewish law. What's interesting about this Jewish man in the Islamic world, right? Andalusia, Morocco, Fustat, writing a codex is that that's exactly what Islamic legal scholars of the time were doing. Islamic law was almost from its inception, maybe a hundred years after the death of the prophet, God's peace be upon him, a codex-based system where large books were written to explain various details of Islamic law. Judaism never had that. Maimonides invented the genre of the Jewish legal codex. Why? I think it's very clear It was a response to what was happening in the Islamic struggles around him. So what is the Mishnah Torah? It's a complete statement of the Orla, so that a person who has mastered the written Torah and the Mishnah Torah would need no other book. The chief critique of it, which is really fun, is that he didn't cite his sources. Now, when we get to the Guide to the Perplex, which is the work I'm going to look at today, he also doesn't cite his sources, but I'm going to argue he does that strategically to hide the Sufi influence in the book. As a historian, I'm annoyed at the lack of citing of sources, but I want to hear more about this book. 
the guide to the perplexed or in Arabic, the Lalat al-Ha'iri, according to, for example, Stanford's dictionary philosophy. So according to like a really normative understanding of the text, it seeks to reconcile Aristotelianism with rabbinic Jewish theology by finding rational explanations for miraculous or prophetic events in the text. Now, I don't think Maimonides was as committed to rationalism as the normative scholarly approach would say. Now, interestingly, also in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, there's this little footnote. A small minority believe that the guide was written by an anonymous heretic. And it's actually those kind of heretical portions of Maimonides where it's really clear that he's writing both an exoteric text for the average Jewish reader and also an esoteric text for a Jewish reader who's familiar with Sufi sources that I want to pay attention to. A quick question about that, actually. You mentioned he has no footnotes. But did anybody at this point? Is this some sort of major discrepancy? So in the Islamicate life world that Maimonides is living in, there's a very time-tested quotation method called Isnad. So when, for example, in a Sufi manual, Suhawadidi's Awarif al-Ma'arif, or the Kashaf al-Mahjub of Pujviri, a source is cited, somebody is quoted, you have the chain of recitation. So Muhammad heard this from Abdullah, who heard this from Obadiah, who heard this from Dawood, who heard this from Jacob, who heard this from the mouth of the Prophet himself, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So there's not only a practice of citation, that practice of citations itself is a subject of much critique. So there are isnads that are daif, weak, there are isnads that are qawi, there are isnads that are up for question. So no, a normative Islamic scholar of the period can't just pull quotes without serious attribution that will be checked up on by other scholars. Did they do it all the time though? Yes, they did. Did they plagiarize from each other all the time? Yes, they did. I like that there was the potential for accountability, but of course they did. Of course they did. It's like reading a work from the 17th century that's just, this is an idea I had, or this came to me in a dream. And it's like, that's not a source. Yes, it is. It is a mystical source. Okay, fine. On that one occasion, for that one genre, I'll take it. Otherwise, no. And the idea that there's this minority of people who think that it was written by an anonymous heretic, I mean, heretical texts are the most interesting texts to me. I really wish that the policy hadn't always been, hey, let's burn these, because I feel like without them, we're missing so much. They tell us about people's way of thinking and engaging with the world and the divine and the mind and society, and we just lose them because they're heretical. So I like when some of that essence survives, even when it's not a heretical text. But just the idea that it could be considered one tells me that there's so much more to play with here than you would get in a standard Orthodox text. Well, and actually, I love what you're saying, because it's so apt for the transition of sources from Judaism to Islam. What's really cool about a substrate of Islamic hadith called the Isra'iliyat is that they're exactly what you're saying. They're heretical knowledge or non-canonic knowledge lost from Judaism brought into Islam by Jews that were far from the motherland, Jews of Yemen, most likely Ka'bar and Wahab bin Munabih who were hearing these rabbinic stories, frankly, these magical stories, demonology, angelology, and they come into Islam as like accepted theology, but they're actually in part Jewish heresies. So much cool stuff. Okay, let's return to this actual text then. So you've given us what the dictionary wants us to think the text is. Now you tell us about it. What is really happening here? So I'm writing my dissertation about this new genre 
of Sufi literature that erupts in Baghdad in the 10th century. And very roughly, they're called Sufi instruction manuals. So, for example, the Book of Ascension to the Essential Truths of Sufism, Miraz al-Tashawuf ila al-Qa'iq al-Tasawuf, a lexicon of Sufi terminology. It's literally a how-to manual on how to be a Sufi. These are the things a Sufi does. This is what a Sufi wears. This is how he prays. This is how he reaches, and this is really important, ecstatic mystical trance. I like to call Sufism a technique, a bodily technique of ecstasy. So some Sufis were absolutely using hashish to reach God, usually the antinomian ones, like the calendars of the Baralvis. But what makes Baghdadi Sufism and later Egyptian Sufism so interesting is that there is a series of techniques written out in these Sufi handbooks, bodily techniques, what we might call like holotropic breathwork, the systematic recitation of the names of God, the whirling dervishes, which is the image that a lot of people maybe in the West have of the Sufi. This whirling, this breathwork, this recitation, all of it was meant to give religionists access to ecstatic mystical states vis-a-vis direct confrontation with God himself. The goal of the Sufi instruction manual and the goal of Sufism itself, I feel I can say this as a scholar of it for 10 years, is direct confrontation with God, being in his presence, or what's called in Arabic, qurb, nearness. Qurb, interestingly, is also the word for relative or family. So being a relative of the divine. So, okay, so I'm reading these Sufi instruction manuals for my dissertation, God help my dissertation, and it's all very well and good. And then a colleague from my undergraduate university reached out to me, Professor Kenneth Wolf at St. John's College. He's like, listen, I want to learn to read Judeo-Arabic. Can we read Maimonides? Can we read the Guide to the Perplexed? Sure, let's read the Guide to the Perplexed. Now, I'm a lapsed Jew. I left Judaism at eight. So I didn't know very much about Maimonides. Very few preconceptions about who he was supposed to be and what the Lala al-Ha'irin was supposed to be. And I open it up and I'm reading a couple of pages. Oh my God, listen to this. What am I reading? For the very innermost parts of the words of the Torah are the jewel. And the externalities of it are everything that does not matter. So this language, the language of internality and externality, and the jewel, this is Sufi language. This is exactly when you would open up a Sufi instruction manual and you're opening up the first page and he's going to talk to you about the batin, the interiority of God's word and the dahir, the exteriority of God's word and how the only thing that matters. So a lot of Sufis will use jewel, but it's often lutlu, the pearl. The only thing that matters in a text is the pearl of wisdom that it allows us to access. Oh, I can see another example on the horizon. Let's have it. I'm seeing Sufi mystical language being used. Ah, maybe it's just a coincidence. Maybe it's just how everyone's talking. Okay, all right. Then I get to a space in the guide that I'm going to read to you, a little paragraph. And then I'm going to read you a Sufi instruction manual. And you tell me what you see in it. All right. Maimonides writes in the first chapter of the Guide to the Perplexed. Among us, there is one for whom the lightning flashes time and time again, so that he is always, as it were, in unceasing light. This is the mystic who remains in God, or in Sufi terminology, baka. He has eradicated his earthly soul, and he lives in God always. Thus, night too appears to him in day. That is the degree of the great one among the prophets, to whom it was said, but as for thee, stand thou here by me. He's quoting Torah here. And of whom it was said that the skin of his faith sent forth beams. This is Moses at the Theophany on Mount Sinai. 
Among there is one whom the lightning flashes only once in the whole of his night. That is the rank of those whom it is said they prophesied, but did so no more. There are others between whose lightning flashes there are greater or shorter intervals. Thereafter comes he who does not attain a degree in which his darkness is illumined by any lightning flash. So here he has a tripartite structure based on the language of lightning flashing of those capable of divine gnosis or in Arabic ma'arifah, a term that Maimonides uses, a word translated as gnosis, but really meaning non-rational knowledge of divine truths. So non-rational apprehension or post-rational apprehension. Great. So what is this other text that you wanted to share with us for comparison? So here I am reading my traditional Sufi manual written by Ahmed ibn Zanjiba, a 17th century Moroccan mystic. Glimmers, flashes, and dawnings. These are three terms that are close in meaning and refer to the lights of perception which may shine forth and then disappear for those who are beginning in the way. First come the glimmers, then the flashes, then the dawnings. Flashes are clearer than glimmers, dawnings are clearer than flashes. Flashes may remain for two or three hours, glimmers which are much weaker vanish. Dawnings for their part are longer lasting and more powerful. They dispel darkness and doubt. So this is a parallel structure using the same exact terminology about the possibility of mystical and divine illumination. Maimonides is also using, again, Sufi terminology about interiority and externality, and one of the most exciting but also difficult aspects of reading Sufi texts is the idea of the secret. Everything in a Sufi mystical manual is a secret. So things are revealed and concealed in a kind of flirtation with metaphor and a flirtation with image. That's well known uh, once you're initiated into the text, but it's very difficult to get into when you're just starting out reading the text, like I was a couple years ago. Then we get again to the second chapter of the Guide to the Perplexed. What is Maimonides gonna say about the idea of the secret and the idea of reading things openly? For my purpose is that the truths be glimpsed and then again be concealed so as not to oppose that divine purpose, which one cannot possibly oppose, and which one has concealed from the vulgar among the people. This idea of truth being glimpsed and concealed, this is a mainstay of every Sufi manual, and most importantly, this bipartite distinction between Amma Anas, the majority of people, you know, poor dumb ones, and the Khawas, the elect of the people, this is a very Sufi structure, that one tells one's secrets with a wink to the elite, but one concealed these secrets from the majority of people. So we have several places just in the first chapter of the perplexed where he's using explicit Sufi structures, where he's using explicitly Sufi language. And he himself is telling us for my purpose is that the truths be glimpsed and then again be concealed. So as not to oppose that divine purpose, which one cannot possibly oppose and which one has concealed from the vulgar among the people. So every week I'm more and more shocked at the ways in which One, there is a clear influence or a clear use of Sufi terminologies, ideas, and language. And also when I do go to the normative scholarship or when I do talk to religious Jews about Maimonides and the Guide to the Perplexed, Maimonides is a rationalist, he's anti-mystical, he has no influence from the Muslims. And I'm really perplexed at what I'm reading and what I'm hearing about in the sort of normative sources. So then I start doing a little bit more scholarly digging And I go to this scholar, David Blumenthal, who writes about Maimonides as a philosophical mystic. He's saying that Maimonides must properly be considered among the mystics 
And the reason that he's not properly considered among the mystics is because Judaism as a field of study in the 19th century German academy, what was called Wissenschaft des Judentum, was attempting to show itself as a rationalist religion equal to the rationalist demands of the Enlightenment. So a lot of the mystical aspects of Judaism were written out as being lowly, inferior, traditional. They were abjected, again, to use the words of Kristeva, and to elevate Maimonides as the rationalist par excellence and as he who brought Aristotle and Greek thought into accord with Jewish law was very much one of the goals. You're not going to call the founding father of rationalist Judaism a mystic if what you're trying to do is prove to the German academy that you too, even you Semites, can be rational, just like those nice rational Germans. Now, we know how that turned out for the Jews, unfortunately. We were unable to prove our rationalist enlightenment credentials to the satisfaction of the Germans and were abjected or excised from the European political body. But what's funny, what's interesting, what I love is what's happening now in this last maybe 30, 40 years in Jewish studies is that the Wissenschaft des Judentums focus on rationalism is being abjected itself. And Jews and scholars alike, lay people and academics, are beginning to look at Jewish mystical texts and rethink and reweave them into both normative Jewish life and Jewish history. That's been really exciting. And that's what I hope this project could do, reading the guide as a Sufi instruction manual for Maimonides. It can help both recover his mystical legacy that David Blumenthal talks about, but also recover the Islamicate aspect of his text. And the Islamicate aspect is what you work on and obviously feel is a very prominent aspect of his work. You could not be closer to power in the 12th century than Maimonides. He was the court physician of Saladin. He was as close to Islamic power as you could be without being on the throne himself. He was the right hand of the throne. He was an advisor. He sat with the mystics. He sat with the founder of the Qadiriya order. We must look at Maimonides through this Islamicate lens if we're going to understand him fully. That makes total sense. So this idea that he's a mystic is slightly controversial. So how does mysticism and mystical thinking work in this text? Where does it appear? He does not deny the possibility of transrational experience. In fact, he seeks it out. The entire third book of The Guide to the Perplexed is about prophecy and the possibility of the Jewish return to prophecy. What is prophecy in this context? Well, in the words of Maimonides, it's a direct experience of God. It's being able to be at the foot of the throne of God. And Maimonides does not give us a method necessarily. All he tells us is that Jews have lost the ability to prophecy. We've lost the ability to become close to God. And that was our punishment during the exile. Wait, the idea that this has been lost, why? Does he give an explanation for this? Judaism has a really ambivalent and conflicted relationship with foreign gods, right? We love foreign gods, we worship them, we whore ourselves out to them in the words of the Torah. And every time we do so, a prophet comes and says, you will be punished. Maimonides and later his son, Abraham Maimonides, David Maimonides, and great-grandson Obadiah Maimonides claim that the end of prophecy is the punishment of the Jews for the destruction of the second temple and ultimately our assimilation into the Greco-Roman life world which is an interesting move to make because Maimonides himself is one, assimilating Aristotelian thought into Judaism, and also, as I argue, very much assimilating into a Sufi ideational matrix. But again, this is, this is a problem Jews have. As a constant minority people living amongst the great majority cultures, the Greco-Romans, the Zoroastrians, the, the Christians, the Muslims, there's always an attraction 
to the other that causes us to lose a self. This goes back 3,000 years to the formative texts of Exodus and Leviticus. It's why we draw such strong boundaries in Leviticus. But it also goes to rabbis at the pulpit today preaching against intermarriage. You know, they're always afraid that Jews will lose their identity in the love of the other. And Maimonides blames the lack of prophecy precisely on that while integrating several streams of otherness into his work. Okay, so he's sitting there saying... We've interacted too much with everybody else and lost this connection, so I'm going to show you how to get it back by using the mystical ideas and texts from elsewhere. I'm going to use their texts to show you how to be better at being Jewish. That is exactly it. The absolute hypocrisy. In the thought of Maimonides, the idea that Sufism is the way that we return to prophetic ability. This is implicit. I'm arguing in the guide to the perplexed. His son, Abraham Maimonides, makes all of this explicit in his major work, Kitab Kifayat Al-Abidin, the book of the requirements of the servants of God, where he seeks to reformulate Jewish worship alongside more Islamic lines, prostration, kneeling while praying, the ritual washing of the feet before worship, and the arrangement of worshipers in orderly rows. Now enter a mosque. This is exactly what Muslim worship looks like. What is the end goal? Of these rearrangements of Jewish ritual prayer, I argue the attainment of Sufi bodily techniques of mystical ecstasy. He is trying to reintroduce the possibility of the ecstatic trance to Jewish practitioners. So what's interesting about Abraham Maimonides is even Jewish scholars are comfortable calling him a Jewish Sufi. He's known as the founder of Jewish Sufism or what's called pietism in Hebrew, Hasidism, not the Hasidism of 15th and 16th century Russia, but their own version of attempting to purify Jewish ritual. Now, you said something really incisive, that Maimonides is attempting to renew Judaism through Sufi practice, aka use the other to establish the self. Maimonides does the same thing with Aristotle, right? Using an other, an ultimate other. The Greek was the ultimate other for the Jews for a thousand years in order to justify and normatize certain aspects of Jewish practice. How does he make sense of this? And how do his descendants make sense of this? This is an interesting moment. The Sufis are actually Jews. And Sufi practice is actually Jewish practice. The prophets were actually philosophers. Aristotle got it from the Jews first. So here's a line of circular reasoning that was done also by Philo of Alexandria in his history of the Jews, of making Jewish thought the foundational thought of any movement that Jews want to take into Judaism itself. So Aristotle got the knowledge of rationalist philosophy from the prophet Moses, for example. And in the work of Maimonides, and again, in the work of Moses Maimonides, this is all implicit, and this is my argument, in the work of Abraham Maimonides, this is made very explicit. Sufi worship is Jewish worship that was forgotten by the Jews. So you're not a hypocrite if they were copying you in the first place. That's exactly right. Judaism is the foundation for Sufi practice. We just forgot it. When we were wandering in the desert, we forgot our true nature. And the Muslims have reminded us. And Moses Maimonides had an enormous appreciation of Islam. He called Islam the true monotheism as opposed to Christianity. And he thought that it was only the Jews of the Islamicate world who could be truly Jewish because they lived with true monotheists who reminded Jews themselves of the origins of their faith. 
as opposed to the Jews of, for example, France or Spain, who lived in the Christian majority, who could not be true Jews because they lived among the polytheists, which he considered the Christians to be. And that is so interesting because definition of the self against the other is so common and mostly profoundly negative. But here it is done in such a positive light of we can learn and relearn from these practices how to be better at being who we were to rejuvenate Judaism and bring back prophecy and bring back this ability for greater connection through the Sufi practices that he's seeing in the Islamic world. I mean, I actually think the stakes are much higher than that. I think what Abraham Maimonides and Moses Maimonides are both saying in the idea that certain practices can lead to the return to prophecy is that taking on Sufi bodily praxis is a way to bring about the Messiah and the culmination of the Jewish faith. Like this is big, right? It is only by taking on Sufi forms of worship and prayer that Jews themselves can be true Jews in such a way that prophecy returns to them, the Messiah comes and heaven on earth is accomplished. That is a lot of pressure. And that's a beautiful and very rare move. And I cannot imagine that being done by any other faith. Absolutely. And I actually think it speaks a lot to what you're saying about the importance of looking at his work and his life through this Islamicate lens as well, because putting so much faith in these practices shows the efficacy that he saw in them and his actual immersion in that world and how that increased his own understanding of faith more generally. Now, the goal of reestablishing this connection and this seeking out of prophecy What does that look like in the text? How do you actually achieve that? You mentioned some things about ritualistic practices earlier, but what does it look like in the work and who is it open to? Yeah, these are great questions. You will not be surprised to know that the structure that Maimonides gives us is very similar to the structure that a Sufi instruction manual would give us for being able to reach prophetic states. So the very first example is purification of the soul through ritual practice. That is the foundation for both Maimonides and the Guide to the Perplexed and the foundation for Sufis. And this is where antinomianism becomes really a problem because the base of both mystical traditions is the nomos. You must master the law before you can reach to God. The second step is knowledge. So in the introduction of the Guide to the Perplexed, Maimonides talks about the fields of knowledge that one must have mastered before one can study mysticism. And they're very much the trivium and the quadrivium, right? Astronomy, astrology, geography, mathematics, the natural sciences, in an Aristotelian lens, theology, exegesis, rhetoric, what we would call today philology, all of these things are the underlying knowledge base. He calls this the intellectual apprehension of God. The next step up the ladder is mahabbat lillah, again, a very Sufi formulation, love for God. Post-intellect is love. This is where people who call Maimonides a strict rationalist or a strict Aristotelian get him totally wrong. They're not reading their own text because what he's calling for is mahabbat lillah, an emotional, I would say, ecstatic experience of divine love. The third and final stage is the stage of pleasure. It's when in Sufi formulation called baka, when you rest in God in all your doings and you are flooded with exaltation. So is anyone able to achieve these stages and follow these steps, provided that they are able to learn how to make this connection in the first place? 
and indeed even, I suppose, understand that it's something that is an important connection to make? Well, not just learned how to make that connection again, but in this distinction between the elite and the masses. And let me tell you, both Maimonides and the Sufis are very cherry of the masses. They think very lowly of the average believer. And this is very common in the schemata of religious belief in that era. It's only the elect who are even capable of achieving that state. It's only an elect person who can even step on the first step of the ladder. Of course it is. I know, I know. That's how I feel. Of course, they're only men. They're only upper-class men. They're only literate men. They're only men of lineage, right? So good family. So, you know, the medieval Jewish equivalent of rich, straight, white men. You know, I never understand it. If you're so eager to bring about the Messiah and bring peace on earth, you should probably let more people try. Just let them try. Don't be so limiting in who's allowed to try and reach this kind of transcendence. Anyway, we have unfortunately run to the end of our time, and I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. But before we end the episode, I need to come back to the main question of the podcast, which is, Elena, why is Moses Maimonides your favorite mystic? Because people don't think he's a mystic. And when people do think he's a mystic, like David Blumenthal, they certainly don't talk about the ways in which he's an Islamic mystic. That's a part of Judaism and a part of Maimonides himself that has been abjected. And you know what I like to do? I like to be a shitster and look at the places in Judaism that we don't want to look at, those parts that we're indebted to, like Islam, like Sufism, like the Middle East, and see how much our own normative practice comes from the Islamic life world. And I can't blame you when this is the kind of stuff you find. <laughs> and this is a really specific response to studying, quote, normative Jewish history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem when I was doing a fellowship there. And I was sitting in the class on the first day and I saw the syllabus and the syllabus did not include any Jewish thinkers from the Middle East as I'm studying Jewish thought in the Middle East. And I left the class after that day because what I realized is that an important part of the Jewish life world post the foundation of Israel has been excising the Islamic and the Muslim from ourselves. And not allowing that part of ourself, and particularly as we see in the work of Ibn Maimonides, that part of ourself that needs or craves the Islamic other to be a part of normative Jewish studies. And that really frustrates me. And so you're not only making a really strong argument against the continuation of that, but also that one of the key thinkers that they point to was actually arguing against this actively in his own time. That's exactly right that the only way to be a minority people in a minority culture is to take in the best of their ideational matrix and make it your own. And this is what Jewish Sufism does. And now I'm realizing if I had to claim a religious identity, it would probably be that. And on that note, Alona, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me all about Moses Maimonides. Thank you so much for having me. This was lovely. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic. And join me next time when I speak to Sam Doubleman about Nicholas of Cusa.